Hello and uh, welcome to the 30-Minute CMO Podcast. We are back. My name is Gorsha Hutra and I'm rejoined by my longtime friend and partner, Alex McNamara. Alex, it is good to see you after quite a few months of not seeing you. Good to, good to see you. Good to hear you. It's been a while. We have taken a little hiatus. We have. Uh, we, had, we, we had to, to allow for some life to happen, babies and such. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we are back, and uh, we're back with, I think, what we'll call a, a new season, a slightly reformatted show. Um, we are going to focus a lot more on single topics, uh, mm-hmm. ones that we find interesting, and really try to dig into them um, either just by ourselves or with uh, special guests who um, know a lot about the subject. Um, and so uh, without, I think, Further ado, let's let's do just that. Um, it is uh, getting closer to the holidays. Um, Christmas is almost upon us. People are looking to buy gifts for their loved ones or indeed for themselves. And uh, we've been wanting to do a show about um, about luxury watches uh, for quite some the, time. The finer know. things in life. The finer things in life. Um, but also the, those that are maybe somewhat accessible. And uh, it's a fascinating subject, right? So we're, we, we, are, we are going to start off with that, um, d- uh, dive into a little bit of history, but also kind of discuss, you know, what makes this luxury watch market really tick? Like, why is it uh, still so relevant? And uh, uh, Alex, I know you, you are quite passionate about the topic, right? Yes, I am. It is, it is a fascinating topic to be stuck into and a very expensive hobby. A very, a very fascinating and expensive topic and hobby. Uh, but we also are lucky to have uh, an old friend of mine, uh, someone who is also quite knowledgeable and I, I would say passionate about this topic, uh, Daniel Ross, uh, joining us uh, to uh, give his perspective. So Dan, welcome uh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Look forward to, to, to chatting with everyone. A rather, r- really fascinating um, and dark, dark, long, detailed hobby so how so um, let's, let's, let's out of curiosity it. how long dan how long have you been um kind of in the um, in the, in this uh luxury watch world as a hobby yeah well i think like i was always interested in the peripherals i'd say to start off so design architecture clothing that kind of stuff um but i think there was probably two things that that got me really deep into it one i was gifted a watch um, which i think a lot of people probably are and, you know, I wore it after high school, didn't really pay much attention to it and then did a little research on it. And there was just so many little fascinating tidbits about what I was wearing. It was, you know, it's an IWC reference 3521, which is a 1990s watch that has anti-magnetism kind of capacity things. And it was something that was purchased by an uncle in Hong Kong, designed by Gerald Genta. And, I, you know, so you start looking and learning about all these components. and You're like, wow, it's a pretty interesting thing that I have. Um, and then I think that plus the pandemic, um, you know, I was at home uh, and started, you know, had a lot of time to kill as many did. And um, a lot of companies started putting out really high production value content about watches and the history of them and the stories and books. And that plus the history kind of combined into a really deep dive into the different colors of bezels and crown guards and all that great stuff. It's it's fascinating. There's so many there's so many things. Uh, I think I got into it similar to you. I got gifted one, and then I actually worked in my previous life in uh, in London uh, on the Omega account. So I had a really really close access to 
some of the team there. I went to Basel to the Omega, um, to the headquarters, went to the museum. Um, so I learned a lot about it that way. Uh, so I am sort of indoctrinated by that that side of the uh, of the town. But then my brother, who is way more into watches than I am, um, started getting me into it. And it's again similar over the pandemic. It was more time to to kill, and you can just spend so many hours just scrolling through, you know, Tropical Watch uh, watch yeah. box, and you can just do all the comparisons of all of the different things, and, and it's those nuances um, of 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 the watches that get you that really get you, and it's the trying to find the combination of all of the things in in the right watch and the right model. And you know, it's it's just it's kind of like wine in which you'll never there will never be enough. And it's amazing how interesting, uh, you know, a different colored dial on a watch is. Like it's such a yeah. bland, stupid thing, but uh, how that never gets boring, or how a wrist shot on Instagram still is interesting, right? Like you find as a grown yeah. man, right, looking at this. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what makes me do that, but uh, just 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 fascinating and a little bit silly. But yeah. I, I guess you have to have silly in your life. And, and yeah, and we'll go into this later, but like the, the imperfections is what creates the, the uniqueness and, and how that, how is that going to still be around in the next 20 to 40 years when you've got such high production quality now. It's but before we get there, Gorsha, you want to start us off? <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, this is this is going to be a fascinating thing for me to uh, to 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 listen to you guys talk because this is um, you know I've been sort of adjacent to this uh, topic but not as involved in it. So um, I spent a little bit of time just for my own sake, but I think for the benefit of our uh, listeners, trying to understand a little bit of the history to get to give ourselves a primer for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I found it very interesting. You know, it's it's really an evolution uh, that happened in the 20th century. You know, a lot of these brands kind of play up their heritage, but mechanical watches, um, as we know them, even though they first appeared in in the 17th century in Europe, um, and they evolved from clocks, but for most of the time until the 20th century, uh, wristwatches were the domain uh, of women, um, and men really were the ones who um, who wore pocket watches. Um, the shift, uh, the shift uh, happened uh, in the 20th century, and it was influenced quite a bit by um, by kind of military culture. And I think because a lot of men were uh, conscripted and went to World War One, went went to fight there, uh, they 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 saw the utility of having watches on their wrists rather than having them be pocket watches. And so uh, that's really when the paradigm shift seems to have happened, um, and uh, men started really looking at wristwatches and, and mechanical wristwatches as, um, as not just objects of utility, but also of, uh, of, of luxury. So uh, it was kind of interesting to, to see, even though watches go so far back in time, um, they, uh, they've, it, they've really sort of changed in the way they were seen and used um, just last century. Uh, nowadays, the gold mark of quality is a Swiss-made watch. Um, Switzerland has cultivated its national identity and the brand through quality and craftsmanship, meaning that most consumers uh, consider Swiss-made watches to be of highest quality. And though original innovations with watchmaking took place in Britain, Switzerland is where the most uh, of the brands are now housed. Um, interestingly, even Rolex, uh, the brand most associated with luxury watches, was founded by Brits, but moved to Switzerland after the First World War. So 
as we talk about this topic, as we talk about watches, it's good to keep in mind that uh, this underlying theme of identity with most brands based in Switzerland, not all, but with many of them, and with all of them commanding high price at, prices, what are all the ways they can dis distinguish themselves in the market? Um, you know, the reason I think that Swiss became renowned watchmakers was that most of them were... Uh... <laughs> they were sheep farmers, weren't they? <laughs> sheep farmers. That is they a were. very interesting... Yeah, that is a very interesting tidbit. Uh, the reason they were they sheep became... farmers in the summer, and they then they had nothing to do in the winter, so they started making watches. And that is, uh, that that is a, a fun story. That is a fact I learned uh, when I went to Basel... Um, yeah and visited the Amiga factory. That is that a is, fact. That is a fascinating, that is a fascinating <laughs> fact uh, that this is how this was became renowned watchmakers. Dan, did you know yep. that? I actually didn't know that. I wow. didn't know that. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we got a little bit of a primer from what, how you guys uh, got into this, uh, into this uh, world of, uh, of, of watches and luxury watches more specifically. So I think it makes sense for us to jump into marketing. Um, first and foremost, it's, uh, it's what moves this, um, this industry because, um, because it's, um, you know, it's, it's fairly crowded and uh, there are a lot of brands competing for um, a finite number of, uh, of wrists and dollars. So let's talk a little bit about marketing. Um, obviously, for most of their existence, uh, watches served a functional purpose of telling time. Um, in the 70s, however, with the introduction of quartz, quartz watches, which were more precise and much cheaper, the functional need for expensive mechanical watches decreased. It was further diminished when smart watches entered the market as they delivered the type of functionality that no watch could provide before. Obviously, luxury watch brands have moved into the jewelry space. Uh, from my vantage point, at least as an observer, it seems like mm -hmm. most brands seem to spend their marketing resources doing one of maybe three or four things. And I'd love to get your guys' reaction on this. But uh, as I kind of sit and observe, um, it feels like the first of this is kind of build and reinforce their heritage creds, how old they are, sort of their origin story. Blankpon and uh, Vacheron Constantina, two of the oldest brands having launched in the early to mid 1700s. Um, you know, Patek, uh, Philippe, they, uh, their marketing kind of tagline is you don't buy a watch for yourself, you buy it for the next generation. So they really kind of talk about heritage longevity. I think it uh, ties into craftsmanship uh, to some extent as well. Uh, the second thing that I see, at least as, a, as an observer, is sponsorship of elite uh, sports. Um, you know, most notably, you have Rolex as a sponsor of Wimbledon and Formula One kind of mm -hmm. sports that are associated with high end, the kind of deep, uh, deep pockets. Uh, Omega um, is, you know, there's an interesting twist on Omega's um, relationship with the Olympics. Um, They're the, uh, they the only non-Olympic mark that is seen inside the event spaces. They're very closely associated with the with the Olympic movement. And so uh, you have others as well, obviously, that either do individual athletes uh, partnerships or sponsorships or, or, or um, being involved in other events. But that seems to be quite the theme, especially around elite sports. Um, and then extreme achievements, uh, deepest diving depth, uh, or going to the moon, or being war uh, worn on the world's fastest flight, or being involved in like the America's Cup on the fastest um, yacht. You know, it just seems like the numbers that are being thrown around at this point in marketing are so silly. Like most of us will never actually go down 10 kilometers, yeah. uh, you know, to the Mariana <laughs> Trench, but the watch can, and like it'll survive while you become a pancake. So that's just a very, <laughs> a very um, kind of a very interesting angle to take for most of the consumers will actually not experience those types of um, extreme events. 
And then I guess to some extent, and Alex, we've talked about this uh, before when we were discussing this topic, accuracy. You know, it's um, it seems like that's a fine line of, you know, where people who are in the market for a luxury watch might care quite a bit about it. But for an outside observer, it's sort of you're, you're looking at um, products that are inferior in their, in, in their kind of timekeeping ability to most of the quartz or smartwatches. But, you know, you start entering this kind of uh, weird paradigm of, you know, once you're in that market, that starts to matter. You start paying attention to things like triple protection movement or mac, uh, master coaxial chronometer that protects against water. Um, magnetism, what Dan mentioned before. So these are kind of the three or four themes that um, I see as being kind of pillars of watch marketing. I want to throw it to you guys and maybe, um, you know, Dan, start with you. What are your thoughts on this? Um, how do you see watch brands differenti differentiating themselves and maybe not among just connoisseurs, but also with connoisseurs, but also pulling new people in? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think what you outlined was, was, was broadly right. And I, I think of it in terms of um, like now, cause you don't, you, like you said earlier, the watch doesn't have any real functional need anymore. It is a piece of jewelry item. E even the concept of like accuracy, I kind of laugh at because the watch stops working if you don't use it after three days and then you have to manually reset it. Right. So at that point you've really lost all accuracy. So that to me, I align it to achievement. Um, you know, but I think they're really selling the, the watches, um, kind of as both an asset to some extent now try and, and trying to tell that story. Um, you know, and in marketing, you know, like for example, the, you, you see it in the news, the magazines where you pick up where Omega has the latest is the George Clooney and his nice car or the Riva boat. That to me is the story of, of what you can be. Maybe, maybe a little obvious. Um, and I laugh when I see that ad, but, but they have also got Zoe Kravitz, right. You know, uh, you know, trying to sell the watch too, or Patek Philippe, right. Where, where the watch is of course, something you hand down. So that's that story and that asset. Um, but I feel like the brands have also started spending a ton of money more extending that storyline um and i you see that in partnerships with instagram um, as a medium where they're telling both in the quick videos um and the alignment to to celebrities or i would say not even celebrities but people who have achieved something that achievement concept you mentioned gorsha but more like in a normal business sense like a great chef right the chef of bernardin and what watch he received when he did well and there's a partnership there um or a lot of new like high production uh, YouTube videos or marketing from comp sites like Hodinkee, which is a, a magazine um, that's recently sprawled in LVMH inve invested in them, which owns, of course, a number of watch companies like Bulgari and others, um, and now trying to pull content out to create more storytelling um, at a high production value or revolution, another magazine. Um, I'll close with this. I think it's interesting, too. One, um, I read recently that Watches and Wonders, a great show, is going public, very much like a Concourse to Elegance car show. They're going to start to allow folks to walk in and see all the watches. I think it's fabulous. Um, you know, some of me, it's not just closed out. To me, that's the next extent of the marketing, making it an event, uh, telling that storyline. You know, you fly with your buddies to Geneva and you go see the show. And it's very, you know, cars have been doing this for years, right? Car shows in New York, Detroit, Pebble Beach. Um, so that's there, too. Um, but I, I think that's, it's going to start to tell that story becomes the experience, um, of that wrapped around it. Cause again, it's like you said earlier, it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a piece of jewelry, right. Meant, meant to mean something else. Yeah. I think, I think that's, um, well, I think there's like two things to look at and you mentioned it already was like the, the famous person aspect of it, which all of the watch brands do. So if you look at. It, it, and it's like, who are they picking to represent? 
Um, so if you look at tag, for example, they're clearly going after like DJs and sports people who appeal to a younger, younger, more entry level audience. And then you've got like Omega and Rolex who are going for the more high, higher end, uh, more of the elite sports uh, angle of it. And then I think what's really interesting is the media that they, they buy. Um, I think they must be one of the only industries that still regularly buys prints, regularly buys billboards. Um, they're in all of the magazines and then also now investing in, in, in social, maybe not so much social in like, uh, content storytelling as like organic social, but very much in the buying Instagram ads. I know I've seen a, a bunch of Amiga ones, um, recently, uh, on, on my feed anyway. So I think it's really interesting that they're still buying, um, quite a traditional media, um, whereas most other brands right now are sort of abandoning print and, and to less extent billboards. Yeah. I find Craig that hate, Craig, Craig would hate if I said that. <laughs> I, I find that the, the, um, you mentioned kind of like the, they sponsor like the achievement, like the, the great, you know, uh, like sports stars, very interesting. Like if you look at Vacheron Constantine's ads, they, they spend money on classical pianists. I don't think the majority of folks have ever heard of. You know, even if you look at most of the Rolex ads, which I find interesting, they've got like the one where they have six different panorama shots of different tennis stars that are not, you know, the main stars of the day. They'll represent and they'll, and they'll have a, you know, a, a little write up around achievement. Again, those are not folks that are, you know, the, the, the powerhouse or not the George Clooney's of the world, yet they feel it's necessary to, to kind of show that. I find that an interesting marketing angle because um, cause they're, they're tacking on to achievement but they're taking attack where they're not trying to get somebody that's overblown or known or something that's very dedicated and skilled in terms of the source. I also find it interesting when you look at a Rolex ad, um, you'll see Nike and Adidas all over that because they take shots at tennis players. I, I always wonder whether <laughs> they have to talk to Nike and Adidas about that because they're able to show those things in the marketing. But that's a side note. It would be more the uh, the athletes would have to do that. Um, and they, if they're going to be seen in an ad, they have to be wearing their other sponsored clothes. And therefore you do have that. So like cross cross pollination of, of advertising and brands. Yeah. I, um, I, I do think that what you just mentioned, Dan, uh, probably plays to this, um, kind of in the know on the inside, uh, or mm. insider, um, element that yep. I think, uh, people really are after, you know, they, everyone wants to be different. Um, I think we'll get a little bit into this when we talk about the imperfections. Um, but um, being able to associate yourself with um, a, a non-star, but someone who is good at what they do and speak to that, um, I think it gives people the sense that they are not shallow, that they're, you know, they, they, there's depth to themselves. And, um, or maybe, maybe there is depth to them because they are so involved in opera or classical music, or maybe they mm -hmm. are, um, really aficionados of like tennis, um, beyond the kind of the glitz and the glamour. And so those brands appeal to them, but I think on a mass market appeal, it's, it just speaks to your connoisseurship of a certain topic, you know, be it sports or classical music, yeah. it's association with that lifestyle beyond the celebrity. You're, yeah. You're, you're right. It's, like if, Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it's just like a, it's like, um, audience first approach. Who do you, who do you want to associate themselves with your brand? And if you pick people in that, in that area, you're going to find people who feel the same way. 
and will want to buy your watch over someone else's watch. Yeah. I think like if I had seen a Vacheron Constantine ad with kind of a brand name, you know, celebrity, I would be more turned off than, than the current ad they have now. And, and I think that speaks to what you were saying, something under me that is looking for achievement and the uniqueness and like the, the, the part of, you know, the, the, there's that club aspect to it that that's there that, you know, and, and Vacheron, you know, is a simple watch that often starts post $20,000. So it, 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 that type of market, as opposed to like a tag, which has Ryan Reynolds at a $5,000, you know, $3,000 mark yeah. is a different, if is a different view. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, um, I, I'd love to get your guys' perspective on um, kind of the global nature of this too, because these watches are mostly, um, they're mostly European products, right? Uh, maybe with the, uh, with the sole kind of notable exception of Seiko. Um, why do they have such a wide appeal in Asia and in, in America and indeed globally really? But, you know, we see a huge demand for luxury watch brands um, in markets um, that are very different from where these watches have grown up, where their legacy is. Uh, what do you attribute that that to? You both actually mentioned, um, I think, Dan, you started with the fact that your watch was, you know, bought originally in Hong Kong. And, you know, Alex, I think you have quite a lot of attachment to uh, Hong Kong as well. So uh, what what what's driving this kind of global appeal and global demand for uh, for for these stories? Um, and I, maybe I'll start with you, Alex, on this one. And um, Dan, you can evolve on that. Advertising. They've spent billions and billions of dollars in all the markets trying to get people to want to buy their watches. And then on the topic we'll go into next, made sure that no one could actually buy them. So you, <laughs> you've created this, uh, you cre- they created the monster of everyone wants it. But I think, I think it's um, like, like with every other product, I think you, you, they've created a broad appeal and it's a, it's a product that isn't a, like national centric you can you can wear a watch and the watch can mean to you whatever it means to you and it can be from any of the brands and it doesn't have to be a a local brand for you to to want to have it Uh, and i think that they've done a really good job of just making it very very neutral in in that way um yeah that's what's that's where my head went to you know i i I mean it's definitely advertising um i also think you know men in particular don't have a lot of options like for showing kind of their personality, well-designed, I mean, you know, achievement, all of these things that you mentioned earlier, uh, Gorsha, that they tie to. I mean, we're not women. Women have much wilder fashion style, have a lot of jewelry options. Men have cars, homes, maybe a little bit of thing, but we're really the watches become that element. I think that's because of advertising and it's been that thing of personality, representation of achievement. Um, they've bought onto that. Um, there's also that like, uh, collected aficionado aspect to the watch where it's something handmade put together. You know, I always like the concept of a Rolex um, in particular because a lot of their watches are sold as built tough, but essentially jewel boxes inside them, right? All these little handmade yeah. pieces, but then a really tough case. It's kind of akin to a man, right? Like to some extent, you can be t- have two sides of you, right? As a watch. So it's, I, I think they've done that kind of job there. And that's where I think it's sold. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's it's a really that's a really great point of um, of sort of like showing your personality and with all of with all of the different ways that you can configure watches or that you can buy them different bracelets, different bezels, you know, fluted, not fluted, this and that, reverse those, you know, rectangular versus um, round versus square. 
you're able to try and find a piece that reflects your personality or pieces that reflect your personality. And I think that's um, that's one of the things that we can we have as as men that we can do. Yeah. I think also it's it's the it's the achievement, you know, personal achievement. Um, not saying it's all about money, but when you're you know you have a certain level of disposable income and you 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 feel like you've achieved something, you want to celebrate with something. And I think that is a it's a sign of you know maybe for some people personal internal satisfaction and for other people it's for external satisfaction so i think there's also there's also that element of given the price points and and scarcity uh being able to show that you have something to to prove you're successful and when you were listing those different watches it was amazing what the marketing's done in my head so when you said fluted non-fluted <laughs> i immediately moved out to the rolex presidential which is the watch you get if you you kind of made it right or the yeah. reverso one, one of my great you know, I read, read about the reverso. They designed it for polo players yep. that could play out in the polo field, but then flip the watch back to the glass side so they could go have a drink at the bar in Buenos Aires. And to me, that story, like, you know, it just stuck with me, right? Is, oh, that's mm -hmm. the type of watch I want to get one day, right? Because it represents some part of me, maybe not every part, but that's clearly all marketing. Then, and then you say, <laughs> and then you say the, the square one, I go to the tag Monaco, which is the Steve, Steve McQueen watch and it's all about racing and it was designed to feel like a stopwatch in, in the hand. So yep. you've got all of these amazing stories that you know, tie into true things and tie into heritage, but also I'm sure at some point they're, they're manufactured as well, but it's all about a great story that you can, you know, you associate yourself with in that story and that brand. Yeah. It, it feels like there's a fair amount of sort of myth and mythology that gets created as well. And I think that um, you know, just like um, luxury watches have this, you know, wide appeal that that's driven by all the things you guys have said. There's also the a desire to feature these in movies like a James Bond, for instance, that has you know that has carried the you know the that concept globally. Um, I think also of um, you know like the James Bond was interesting because he was a Rolex first. And then Amiga does a deal in 95 for Goldeneye. And that's when he starts wearing Amigas. Which is probably about the same time that I lost a lot of respect for Amiga. So I'm looking for <laughs> that conversation. Well, that, because... that brand <laughs> is a really interesting one to talk about because of the Swatch Group and what the Swatch Group yeah. did and is doing. Because um, they single-handedly saved the watch industry in the 80s-ish when everyone was going quartz and no one was yeah. buying mechanical and they bought up a bunch of them. They saved Rolex as well through the, through building a reputation of Swiss made and mechanical and building up the mystique and the mystery and, um, and all of those kind of things. And so, you know, we may bag on them, but the Swatch group did itself save the watch industry. Um, but then they've done some really strange things and some stupid things like, the moon swatch which is an incredible piece of marketing i think before we leave yeah, the topic man. of marketing the moon swatch i think is one of the most insane things that i've seen they took a swatch watch and gave it the speedmaster um shape and case look made out of plastic made 11 of them one no 11 yeah one for each yeah. planet however planets there are depending on if you count pluto or not i guess and uh and then there were lines all over the world uh, for people trying to get one of these watches and it was it was insane so what did you think alex what did you think that did to the brand like i was i always i always think about what that did to omega mm -hmm. 
Uh, do you think it was positive, negative, doesn't matter? I think it was... Uh, I don't think it devalued the Omega brand. I think it... I think... If you were gonna, if you like us, if you like the Speedmaster and the Moonwatch, I think I don't think you would have felt differently. I have one, uh, and I don't feel any differently about it. Uh, I don't think it devalued Amiga because I don't. I think it any if anything, it made Swatch a little more interesting. Um, but I don't. I don't mm-hmm. personally. I don't think it it did much. I think they've done other things which which were yeah. less good because yeah. it wasn't the Rol- Amiga brand itself. Do you think if Rolex put its name on a plastic watch? Would it would it would it have the same effect? I, I think maybe because I know the Swatch Group owns both brands, it's mm-hmm. easier for me to to keep them separate. And I know that it was like a, a the you know that the holding company making the decision. I think if Rolex did it, I think it'd be definite because they you know, but their their sub brands are what Tudor. And Tudor is still yep. at like a four thousand plus price point. So you, even if even if you did put a Rolex Tudor mashup together, you, you're still you know ten x twenty x over what uh, what the Swatch watch the yeah yeah um whatever it's called the oh, what's Moon it? Swatch Moon Swatch yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think that's the big difference in approach. You know, you look at something like Tudor and Rolex; they keep the vans very separate. Even yeah. like when you walk into a store. They're like literally where the jeweler is in, in my town here. You have to walk through a separate door to get to Rolex and Tudor's out with the rest of the watches. Um, yeah. And Rolex is very slow to change any model line or number. Omega takes a very different approach and produces, you know, varying levels of kind of special editions constantly. You mentioned, Always. you know, through the, all the, and so it's a very different, you know, and, and from a marketing perspective, you know, at least from my vantage point, that definitely, that takes the brand in a different way, I think, you know, and, and see, like, there's, there's, you could see the, the differential there. Um, yeah. I think, I think Amiga as well, they, that broadly, they're not in the same, I think the movement is, is better or on par as Rolex, but I don't think they have the, the brand um cachet as rolex does because i think they do so many like crazy things with their brand and they also yeah. have so that the the I, I think a lot of the watches don't look as good as the rolex ones um even if the movements are better um i think you know you've got the master coaxial which is an incredible movement that they built and they re they rebuilt mm-hmm. a bunch of the internal from um silicon i think so that you wouldn't get the magnetism so they could have the open case back Whereas the Rolex still has the steel or the metal case back, um, and the Far- and the Milgauss is a Faraday cage within the case itself to mitigate against magnetism. So, you know, even though they do have like a technically technically a superior movement because of that, uh, I, people I don't think value it as much. But then you have, you know, they come out with a special edition. Um, 2020 Olympics, and you got five Speedmasters of different colors, and it's going for like seventy thousand dollars on on the secondary market. Uh, and you do have some like heritage watches, which which do, but for the most part, the flagship models of Rolex will always go for five k, ten k over what a Amiga would do. So the the desire for what people want to pay for a Rolex is is higher than an Amiga. Yeah, I think that yeah, that's a great great point, and I think a lot of that is just their, their limited 
they're limited they're limited changing you know like i would love a clear case back from them but that's just not what yeah. they do so they shouldn't do it um yeah. you know i did and they, i did and, and, okay. and they won't do it because they say it there's an, it's an extra piece for it to go wrong so they're not going to do it because you know if you introduce a clear case back you need to change the materials you're going to change the um the locking mechanism you're going to add an extra um uh, what is it? The little the doodad to connect the metal to the clear case back, which could fail. You're increasing it. You're adding another mm -hmm. failure point, which they don't want to do. So like, you know, solid case back. That's it. Makes our watches better. Yeah. Like no fuss. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I cut you off. No, I, the only other thing I was going to add on top was, um, you know, you mentioned the brand and, and Rolex. And I, before the show, I was I was it feels like the Rolex brand is like unique in the branding world about like when you hear the word what it what it means and i was trying to think of something equivalent to that right outside of watches that would be similar the only one that i could come up with was the 911 um where you, you know if you know a 911 and there's many variations of a 911 and it's a deep world and something fun you know but it 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 has that same level of kind of like international appeal and in, in cachet to some level i can't think of any other brand or thing that is created a world that's like um that's so deferential to success in design like that that just pumps it forward and i was interested if you guys had any thoughts on that like uh i mean maybe cadillac from the earlier days mm -hmm. uh in the u.s um or maybe as an industry i think um whiskey and to some to some extent tequila now um, but it's not a brand and it's, it's more on the many variations of the same thing. Uh, and people trying to find the one combination of all of the different profiles, uh, to, that suits them, that, that really resonates with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I'm thinking about the other kind of parallels and Dan, you, you brought up this topic and, you know, um, what, it, what signifies sort of heritage and success and achievement and excellence um, and sort of a universal symbol of taste. Um, and, you know, certain watch brands like a Rolex um, have that very universal, like, appeal. People people sort of get what that means. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, if 911, uh, the Porsche 911 has, um, you know, I think you have to maybe dig a, one, one layer deeper in order to... Uh, like have an appreciation or awareness and appreciation for that, you know, and it's interesting too, that Rolex, um, their kind of marketing is all about perpetual, which is only one of their watch lines, correct? Like it's, um, it's, or it's sort of, um, links to one of their kind of product lines, but it's not, uh, everything that they have, but that's what they go to market with a lot, especially around sports and achievement. Um, but I do think Scotch, you know, I think to me, Scotch has a lot of, you know, Scotch is a very, it's, it's a very geographically specific um, mm -hmm. product um, from a small place um, with, you know, let's say, let's be clear, like very much an acquired taste that at its highest end is gifted along sort of the similar lines or seen along the similar lines, I think as a luxury watch might be or, or, or a car. It's, it's not obviously the same price point, but I think it's, it stands to reason that someone who wears a Rolex and drives a 911 will have a Johnny Walker blue label at their house because those are sort of all part of the same kind of concept of like a successful global jet set type. Um, and all of these things, by the way, seem to come out of like the 1960s 
where you know the idea of like what modern luxury in that sense uh represents right like global mm-hmm. global by nature jet set like no borders you know like very adaptable um and what blows my mind is that all all of these things um you know it's it's, it's just a testament to how europe and maybe like the western culture in general have been able to export themselves and and make that mark that we all associate you know we all kind of know that you know we see johnny walker blue and we see a 911 porsche and we we see a rolex and we just know what it means yeah you don't have to yep. explain it's like going to harvard like you don't have to explain to anyone what like what harvard is it's like it's just done you know like and so like here like there's no explanation yet it's all been done for you over the decades yeah it's entered the mass stream right like it's not just it's not just the aficionado group i think most folks know that scotch is a premium collected product even if you don't drink it or you don't interact with it on a daily basis that's right, the yeah. same for a Rolex or a Porsche or a 911, you know, so I, I think that's that, that's definitely true. The interesting thing with the Scotch variant is while Scotch is, you know, from Scotland and watches are from Switzerland, the Japanese in both angles have taken a very deep approach to it um, yeah. on both watches and Scotch. And I would I would say that uh, the reason they're able to is because they, like Switzerland, um, have the reputation for a meticulous, meticulous kind of approach to things and, and craftsmanship. So they're mm-hmm. applying their kind of national trademark and brand to also the products and, and actual brands that they represent. Uh, one other thing that I thought was interesting, it was uh, from an episode from a few years ago, but um, I was, uh, um, you know, we're, we're talking about these, these things. You know, there are other elements of luxury that, um, you know, like Arriva or, you know, like you can kind of go mm. up the scale, but they become less and less accessible. And so less and fewer and fewer people sort of know, know what that means. Um, I remember talking to um, uh, a, a brand, uh, a head of brand for um, HSBC Private Bank. Um, and he sort of brought up the collective things that we were talking about. And he's like, well, if you're talking about customers who are, you know, buying, um, I think he said, customers who are buying a Rolls Royce or like wear a Rolex, he's like, those are too poor for us. We're looking for the private private jet ownership owners as our <laughs> customer base, you know? So like even in that rarefied stream, like there, there are gradations um, mm. and, uh, you know, people, people understand that. Um, and it's, you know, there are brands, can you guys kind of speak to this for a second? Because you focused a lot on sort of the mass market part of the luxury watch um, um, kind of uh, world, but there are some wa- uh, watch brands that, that, that are by a factor of magnitude more expensive at their starting level. Jesus. Yeah. And they're awful. <laughs> the, uh, I, the one, the one that always comes to mind is the Richard meal, which I think have got to be some of the m- most overpriced, uh, thing I've ever seen. And I, I understand that they've made very complicated movements and it takes a lot of time to do that, but they don't need to be that expensive or look the way they do or be associated with the, the, the way that they are associated with um, the people who are sort of setting the tone for the brand. And that's yeah. very much a personal opinion on that. Didn't they have like the, one of the thinnest mechanisms? I think it was that. And the the f- was player, the right? Ferrari 001. It was, yeah. yeah. I mean that, okay. That one is incredibly amazing. Also but, very stupid. But, but also like the people they've slapped this, these watches on are Rafael Nadal. Okay. Wimbledon yeah. achievement. And then Bilzerian. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and Lando, Lando Norris as well, who his, and, I'm a McLaren fan 
but his current uh, achievement is driving for McLaren, which you know is not exactly the pinnacle of of Formula One right now. All right. Well, listen. Um, moving on, uh, moving off of the topic of actually like marketing these brands to uh, one that goes hand in glove with this, and that's the topic of scarcity. Um, you know, and it, it clearly exists in this world. And I think you guys will tell me, obviously, but I feel like it's only gotten worse, or at least until recently, it's gotten worse through the pandemic. Um, it seems incredibly manufactured. Um, it has been very hard to find watches. You know. Why, why the obsession? Why the scarcity? I've, I've previously worked with uh, De Beers and they're able to maintain this artificial scarcity by controlling supply, but at least there they rely on sort of natural resources and the fact that they are one of maybe only two global companies that have the kind of, you know, control of, uh, of, of the diamond extraction business to, to do this. Um, how can scarcity be created and maintained when you have so many bl- brands, so many players, so many options for consumers? It's uh, it's really strange. Dan, what's kind of what's your what's your take? Yeah, I think the the scarcity in the last few years, and interested in Alex Tay's take on this, um, you know, was primarily with the private held firms um, in the watch industry. So Paddock, AP, Rolex, um, where they had set production lines. And, you know, I, I think historically we've had a lot of cheap money in the market you know, with low interest rates. You had the crypto boom and and that I, I think a lot of that wasn't manufactured, but was good for the watch brands, um, you know, and I think because um, because I remember, you know, historically and I, I chatted with uh, our local Rolex dealer and she said they're getting more watches in than they've ever gotten before. Um, it's just that they're all they're all assigned or at least the main ones. Right. The, the sports models that are that are going um, but I think if you look at the public firms owned by Richemont or LVMH, you know, so Cartier, um, even, you know, Vacheron to a lesser extent, they've had a couple of models here and there that have gone, mainly the sports ones, um, because the watch industry's taken a turn, but they don't, I don't think they dealt with scarcity at the same level. Nonetheless, I think it was a, it, it's, it strikes me as something that did, does play well into their hands as a, a story and an asset. Right. You know, the asset part makes it easy for people to buy these very expensive small pieces because you feel like you're not losing a lot of money. Um, It's really just transferred to some extent in some ways, which is why I think perpetuated the private firms pieces there. Um, But I I think, um, you know, I think I think some of the other firms are are, the public firms are learning how to create some of that scarcity with their limited editions um that maybe maybe other firms but i did hear and i'll close on this i did hear rolex is just expanding their production line it's going to add about 25 percent. so you know it'll be interesting to see how long their scarcity lines when they get that up and running yeah i had i had a similar thing that it takes three years to train a train someone a rolex to be able to be on the production line and we're at that point now where the demand went through the roof at the beginning of the pandemic and three years later, here we are with Rolex rolling out 25% extra. So yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that kind of checks out. I think I think what you said about the 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 scarce. I mean, it is manufactured scarcity. I think it, I mean it's also like how fast can can hand can you hand make a watch? So there's a a natural limit on that. Uh, but also it's it was scarcity not from the supply as much. I mean, I think supply chains were impacted by the pandemic. Um, they couldn't, you know, if the watchmakers were sick, they couldn't be making watches, but then the demand was just way, 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 way out of whack. So the, uh, uh, the appeared scarcity was worse. I remember you could yeah. go into a, a dealership 
uh, a dealer, an AD, and you could you could probably get most of the regular watches for Rolex. M most of them they would have in stock. Not the you know, but there's always going to be the the scarce the the ones that they make less available, like the sub with the green bezel, the sub with the blue face and the blue bezel. Um, so there's always going to be the ones that they intentionally make more scarce. Um, but I think you know with Dan, like you said, the uh, crypto money went you know through the roof. The people were borrowing at record low rates. There was just a lot of people weren't traveling. They weren't doing anything. Yeah. And watches was a way that you could spend money that you had extra of if you were in a fortunate position to be able to do that. And you know if you could get it from an AD, great. If you couldn't, you would go on to Watchbox, Tropical Watch, any of the you know secondary market dealers and. You know, pay a premium for it, but if you if that's what you wanted, you were able to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think, Gorsh, you you we kind of talked about this the other day. Is you know, crypto crash, interest rates up, people are trying to get liquid, and now they're dumping all of their all their wares on the market, so the prices, secondary prices, are coming down. And what I think is really interesting is, before I knew much about it, I thought they were like Rolex as an example, were, were hugely expensive. And I mean, like, hugely expensive in the watch world. Um, they're like 8,000, 8,500 uh, MSRP, usually from an AD. And on the secondary market, you know, you could get it for 12, 15, depending on the model, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus. But I think the the perception of, of Rolex is more the secondary market value than it is mm. the AD value. Um, because I was kind of, shocked at how not as expensive as I thought it was going to be. I mean, $8,000 is still a lot of money. Like that's not, that's not, it's not a, you're not buying you a Schnola an, for 800. You can get an air you know? for about 6,000. I think. Yeah. Like you can, a, you can get level, a, right. And it, it was re, you know, a few years ago, that thing was sub five. Well, you could, you could get a Explorer one Mark two for five and a half. And yet on the secondary market is 10 and a half, or it was recently yeah. uh, with box and papers. That's another thing. We should go into this in a second, but all of the things, the the di different years, the different um, sun exposure, box and papers, no box and papers, what that in what that does for the secondary value is is in is insane. Well, I think that's like know, a watch nerd kind of thing. So you know, the secondary market, uh, you, <laughs> you you guys exposed me a little bit to this, and Alex, you and I went in and kind of just browsed together. It is nuts you know yeah. uh it is you know there there are watches of a certain vintage that you know one might be twenty thousand, and the same brand but like slightly different from the same year might be one hundred and sixty thousand. um what's you know how do you explain that you, you know it, it, you mentioned at the beginning at the top of the show that um there could be imperfections or certain manufacturing defects that actually could contribute to the premium uh, that they command because of the unique factors um is there really that much connoisseurship in the watch world that these things can fetch such prices uh, on the secondary market? Uh, Alex, what's your take? Uh, I, I mean, you just got to look at the prices and 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 yeah, I mean, it, it clearly is. There's a I, on Tropical Watch right now. There's a solid gold Rolex with a with a blue bezel, blue face, which I've never seen, but it's a Daytona. And it's one hundred and sixty thousand, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I mean, it's 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 insanity. Someone's going to buy it because uh, they're going to want it. But I think it's yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think it's the 
the uniqueness of the watch and it kind of comes back to like you as a person and what you're trying to show and what you what you're looking for but it's the uh the defects i mean the the lacquer on dials would crack and they're now called spider dials the looms on the hands and on the hour markers will fade and create this this beautiful from a white to a yellow and cream you know the the face on a uh, on a explorer 2 will sometimes go cream from the late 80s and like those are all things that people want because they make them different from the uh from what they were originally intended to look like and and like even like small production run errors or small production runs of the sub with the red Submariner, will will add a premium of like ten or fifteen k on it. Yeah, or the, the there's the, there's the Domino's Rolex everybody loves, right? Yeah, Which is such a great great. You know, the, so there's that whole world of uniqueness, right? Where like those are that story is the story is worth a lot. But Gorsha, I think yeah. there's also a lot that doesn't make sense. Like recently, I saw this was six months ago, so in the middle of the hype, you know, a uh, Paddock Nautilus in steel was going more for the same model, same year as a gold version. So that, that's where I start to look a little bit like, okay, how is the, you know, like clearly the metal isn't the same. Is there that much demand for just a certain metal? And, you know, it, uh, I didn't, I didn't make any sense of that except for the fact that, you know, we're in a market where there's relatively cheap money and people look at these as assets. Yeah. Well, I think that, and I think that's really, that's really true. The people who see them as assets, like they hold the value uh, incredibly. Like I, it's rare that you can get a, a product like that where you can buy it walk out the shop and immediately sell it for double it's double what it was guys i mean the AD will hate you but but you'll never get another watch from them again but you'll sell it and that asset world is all created because of marketing right it's not like the government is backing you know the currency right like the it's fake ultimately it's created by this world of perception which is incredible from right to me not a marketing you know from that that i'm buying this thing because you know it's not a house i don't live in it you know, and it's not a government-backed asset, but it's worth, you know, and demonstrably around the same. I'll lose a little bit here and there, but, you know. In and and it doesn't even keep time that well. No. So. I mean, I don't even I, – I, yeah, you know, I, I look at my phone as much as my watch, right, for time. Uh, yeah. let, me, let me ask you this question. Um, are we – when we talk about uh, watches as assets or, you know, kind of watches as a topic, are we talking – more about men's watches uh is there the same kind of uh insanity happening on the secondary market with women's versions of the same brands or is this um you know crypto bros going nuts with silly cash like what's what's your take i i think it it's definitely more of a man's thing you know when during the pandemic when you walked into a watch shop for the most part they could show you a lot of women's watches. They wouldn't have one men's watch for a lot of the brands or the ones you really wanted, which showed me the volumes there, the the demand. Also, I think the, I think the women, you know, I think the what we talked about earlier, kind of the the watches, this kind of cultivated asset with history and perception is something like a, hasn't really been aligned as a story in the women's world. They're still seen primarily as jewelry, and I think that's just created that that broad view my, my wife doesn't even wear a watch doesn't want to watch um you know so it's it I, I find it yeah i think it's mainly a man's thing interesting um well on i think uh it, this kind of moves moves us into the future of luxury watches and uh i'd love i'd love to get in uh into how you guys see um this world evolving or maybe not even evolving i'm sure it's evolving though 
Um, I I think about uh, how uh, some brands are, you know, in the luxury watch space are tinkering around the edges with uh, with smartwatches. You know, Montblanc, Longines. You know, they are they're doing this, but um, you know, is is this a sound strategy? You know, to to do this, you know. What about them remaining a status symbol um, as, as they have been? Um, you know, do, is, is there really a pathway for, for all of these brands to still exist in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time and, um, and kind of appeal to a big enough audience contrary to the fact that they are less functional, um, they're super expensive and uh, hard to get you know are we are we going to see a shift in um in 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 this market or is it going to stay uh to stay the same i'd love to hear dan your thoughts on this maybe first and then alex kind of how you how you're seeing this yeah um i think there's always a world you know for 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 lack of a better word veblen goods right so goods in the economic principle where the, the higher you price it the more demand there is for those types of things um whether it's a watch or not is a different story because you know you have many choices um but i i again to my earlier point i don't think men have a lot of options in terms of showing achievement um you know on their personal body or or telling that story and i think the watch is good for that you mentioned um uh kind of smart watches um and while i think a lot of the watch industry you know is 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 you know kind of split on the view of smart watches I do think in 30, 40 years, most brands will have a version of a smartwatch. I think I think the space on your wrist is too valuable. Right now, I don't think the smartwatch is that important. It doesn't do anything that I have to have. Eventually, it will, um, and there'll be a need for it. And I, you know, I don't know whether it's similar to Apple CarPlay and a Mercedes Benz, but um, I think you're going to have to see a transition from the industry. And they're still going to bring all the same marketing aspects we talked about earlier, um, but they're going to have to use that space for other goods. I think I think in that example, the the Mercedes one is an interesting one because your Apple CarPlay doesn't change the the function of the car. You're still you're buying the Mercedes uh, for the rest of it, and the CarPlay adds a ease of use. But I think if you were to change a Rolex or a IWC into a smartwatch, you lose a lot of the uh, the the kind of the function of it. And then you also lose the like if, if you were to use uh, you know Android operating system on your on you know or they have it on the what course what was it the Mont Blanc yeah um, you know then you you have an Android watch with a Mont Blanc name on it and I yeah. and I I think I don't I don't see personally how you can put the two together without losing the the essence and the soul of a mechanical watch yeah i think part of, i read an interesting article about this and they were just kind of envisioning like um right now you're right the watch doesn't do enough but imagine a rolex yeah. watch in 50 years where all it had was a single chip in it and you still had a rolex mechanical but the chip yeah. paid for your subway opened up doors hooked up to your car and it wasn't part like you didn't visually see it it still was a mechanical piece Yet the technology was advanced enough that it added it added aspects to it, but didn't take that. Yeah. That's that's what I mean. Where I think it'll become valuable enough, they'll have to expand. Um, but they're nowhere near that now. I think you're right. Like the 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 car of the Mercedes is still the same. There's a piece of functional that gets you around. I think yeah. the watch would have to take the same route, um, or yeah. else it would lose it. But I think long term, I I think they probably do. 
you know, you I, could just uh, be Johnny Two Watches and have your smart watch on one yeah, side. Yeah, that I don't think I. That, yeah, that I don't think I'll be caught dead with the two watches. But you know, can I, never. I, I I I wonder how many people would not buy a car if it didn't have Apple CarPlay, though. Even though they're really going to the brand for most of the other attributes, right? Like one hundred percent. That I am in that camp. I would absolutely not buy a car if it didn't have CarPlay. Hundred percent. You know, I'm getting there too. It's freaking yeah. amazing. <laughs> and and you know, uh, Dan, you kind of mentioned this, but like this is the risks are. You know, there's only two of them, um, and it's uh, limited real estate. You know, you don't want to be the douche wearing like a fitness tracker on one and a, and a and a mechanical watch on another. But I feel like the this is grounds like for for innovation where maybe the strap becomes the more interchangeable bit with the chip being there mm. with the rest of the watch mm -hmm. uh, That's a great is, point. is the, is the timepiece. I'm, I recall, you know, Dan, you and I were in Vegas, um, earlier this summer and we went to that, uh, big kind of watch emporium. Um, and I asked the, the saleswoman the question about this and, you know, her, her answer was very sort of absolute and kind of felt like out of, out of touch with where the demand is going to come from. But she's like, no, like you can't, you, you, you can't have, you know, both. It's like, it's either one or the other. And I, I feel like that's, that's going to be the challenge for these, uh, for these brands is actually to satisfy that demand. Because unlike maybe you guys, I don't want to sacrifice um, maybe the fitness tracking capabilities that my Apple watch gives me, but I would love to have something that's more timeless and has more meaning and something I can have more of a relationship with um, on my wrist other than the plastic Apple Watch that I do have. Um, you know, and I'm willing to put money behind this, but right now there is not a solution out there for me that I'm willing to, um, that I'm willing to kind of explore. So I'm, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure there's actually, a, yeah. you know, I think Apple has shown what the size of that market is uh, with watches that have the Hermes uh, strap. Yep. Or yeah. with, oh, smokes. Uh, yeah. or, you know, that costs several thousand dollars or with, going more up market with, uh, you know, Apple watch ultra that starts at 800 bucks, you know, which is gets close to Longines territory. Um, and so, you know, there are people who are willing to Hamilton spend, with that, you know, you, there are people who are willing to spend a few thousand dollars, you know, on something that's more differentiated, but they just can't find the good reason why to do it. Yeah. I think tag is doing a great job of trying to enter that market. And I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, Apple watch one in many respects, right? They showed there's a need, you know, most people I see have an Apple watch on, you know, you know all economic spectrum. Um, so clearly there's a demand. I think Tag, Mont Blanc are trying to enter that world. You know, I think it's, again, back to the CarPlay thing. I think the technology from some of these companies is so good that they're going to have to combine forces um, to create what you're kind of after. I just haven't seen that on the market yet. Do you think we're going to, do you think it's going to be a case like with the cars that it's, it has to be a watch OS, otherwise no thanks so you're gonna to have to i mean you're gonna to have to get a apple watch operating system into a rolex or a omega or something because people will want to connect it to their phones and it's a much easier much easier thing to do with apple than it is with android yeah i don't know i i feel like the that's a great question i feel like the brand overlap there the watch brands are so protected um, yeah. that to open up that for the hot, for the, for the luxury players, I think would, would really take a hit on their story, uh, and their, their story is an asset. I don't think you have to go full OS. You can use, um, 
you know, my analogy of, uh, of utilizing the, the strap, um, yeah. and make that connected to Apple's open source health kit and, um, you know, feed a lot of the relevant information back to, to your iPhone. But I do, what we should, what we should do is do that. Let's go do that. No one yeah. take this idea. This is our idea. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, guys, this has been a great conversation. You guys obviously have a lot of uh, deep knowledge on the topic. I, I, I sort of want to bring this back to marketing, but um, ask you one very simple question. Um, Dan, you're an Omega, uh, a Rolex um, man. Uh, Alex, you're an Omega man or Amiga. Um, in, in your own words, can you just kind of paint for me you know, the lifestyle metaphor for each of these, like Dan, in your words, you know, Rolex, like Rolex is what, like as, as a, as a metaphor and Alex, I'd love for you to sort of offer the same. It's just kind of a parting way for us, uh, to, to capture the essence of what these brands and watches really represent. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, you're, you know, I recently, recently, um, bought a new one and I had one use case in my mind for it. It was it was it was watching walking the beach with my dog and in a watch that was robust taking a swim in the ocean, and of course it's three hundred meters. I don't really need that, but you know you go in. But then you know getting it all roughed up and sandy, and then later in the evening you know having a dinner at the hotel, um, you know dressed up with my wife wearing the same watch, um, yeah. and that 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 concept that juxtaposition of you know a beautiful place doing something rough and you know masculine and thing and then there uh, but then having a nice dinner I think. That to me sums up the, the the lifestyle and the marketing that they've embedded in me uh, at Rolex. Alex, I think I think uh, Omega. If so, if, if I was going to play off that one, I think Omega would be the the guy going for a run down down the beach next to you, walking the dog, and then going and doing like um, like a paragliding or parachuting <laughs> or something, and it would be more of the like. Not sports person, but it's the stuff that's the, it's less of like a luxury refined and more of a things are going to get done wearing the watch. Like the, you know, the, the moon watch, for example, like that, that's kind of yeah. like where I'm, where I'm playing with it. It's like, it's, it's designed to do that kind of thing. That's great. It's funny because uh, that is not me. Like I'm not about to go paragliding um, or get stuff yeah. done, uh, but you know, the other is mine. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's how the watches build that off. Well, that's uh, that. I think I think that's a really good encapsulation of uh, of what these watches could represent in someone's mind, um, what they stand for, why you create this kind of reason for yourself to uh, to to make that purchase. And I think, guys, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, very interesting. Um, obviously, these these companies are doing something right uh, because they're creating huge demand. They're able to command ever increasing prices um, and are growing the market share more and more people are are entering this market um you know looking to kind of show their sense of you know style or achievement uh kind of the pillars remain the same um really appreciate you sharing uh coming onto the show and sharing this um and uh for our listeners if you have your own um stories with a luxury watch we'd love for you to um, hit us up either through the website, uh, 30minutesdemo.com or on uh, our Instagram at 30minutesdemo. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll look to see what your, what your comments are. Alex, Dan, thank you guys. Moshe. It was a pleasure. Gentlemen, have a Thanks good Thanks very evening. much.